Well, there's no better place to start when it comes to Bible study than Genesis, the book of beginnings. Our vision is Africa for Christ. Sola Scriptura is the great battle cry of the Reformation. Scripture alone is our ultimate authority. Sola Scriptura was one of the five battle cries of the Reformation. Where in this mission will you see the five solas inscribed? Yes? In the stairwell, we've got the Luther Rose, and we have those beautiful five solas in Latin, visible uh, through the window, lit up at night. But there's also a wooden plaque down below, which was made by one of the Bowers girls. I think it was Caroline. She would have done that wooden plaque, and that's in our reception area. However, while all Christians claim to believe the whole Bible... Very few seem to have read the whole Bible. Our professor of Old Testament at Baptist Theological College, now Cape Town Baptist Seminary, Dr. Fritz House regularly asked students how many had actually read the book of the Bible which we were studying for the semester, which could be Daniel, Exodus, Psalms, Ezekiel. Incredibly, only a minority of students could say that actually read that book of the Bible that we were studying in that semester. Some commented, we read the commentary, and Fritz House said, you do not read the cookbook and skip the meal. But a lot of people seem to do that these days. On one occasion, Dr. Fritz House asked the assembled college students of all years at a chapel service, how many had read the whole Bible? Well, if some started to put up their hands, but then one asked, you mean the New Testament? And Dr. Fritz House smiled and replied, no, I mean the whole Bible. Hands went down all over the college. This kind of explains the problems we've got. These are ministers in training. Uh, everybody in that college was someone who is training for the ministry. If we don't have a solid foundation, uh, the building's going to be in trouble. Surprisingly, few pastors can articulate the central message or the clear distinctives of every book of the Bible. We know this because for four decades of ministry, in the streets, in the marketplace, in the shopping malls, across the continent, where we've engaged in personal one-on-one Evangelical service, it's clear there is pervasive biblical illiteracy. At camps, at courses, we can see from the response to our Bible exam that most students are ignorant of the central doctrines of Scripture and the major events in redemptive history. In fact, even at Bible cultures and theological seminaries, we can see that many students and even a surprising number of lecturers are ignorant of central doctrines of Scripture and the key events in redemptive history. We once had a man who'd been a college lecturer, Bible college lecturer for three years, applied to be the manager at our Christian Liberty bookshop downstairs. He failed the Bible exam, which is multiple choice. And when I asked him, a little flawed at this, asked him, so what books have most influenced your life? She, he says, oh, I don't read books. I hate reading. He was applying to be manager of Christian Liberty books. He had been a Bible college lecturer and he didn't read. I said, like, next. But in in my confusion uh, of this answer, I asked him, uh, what pets did he have? And he said, oh, he hates animals. That was like, what are you even doing in here? (laughs) Start running while I fetch my rifle. Anyway, I I didn't say that. Hosea 4 verse 6 warns us, my people are destroyed from lack of knowledge. And when the Bible college lectures hate reading and hate part of God's creation, I mean, it's pretty sad. If you want to know why things are bad in the church. 
Scripture alone is our ultimate authority. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Surprisingly few, though, can articulate the central message of the Bible or the clear distinctives of each book of the Bible. But for a minister of the gospel, that's actually inexcusable. When last did you read through every book of the Bible? That's a good question. If asked, could you explain where each book fits in the broad sweep of redemptive history? Chronology is important. Context is key. Many pre-exilic prophecies, prophecies already fulfilled, are today being applied to present and future events because people didn't realize the chronology. How well do you know the Word of God? How well do you know the God of the Word? Whenever we delve in the Word of God, we find gold. But if you dig deeper, you find greater reefs of gold. Yes, you can pan and find some gold dust and a few nuggets in the streams, but to find the reefs of gold, the tons of gold, you've got to dig down miles under the earth, as they did in Johannesburg, in particular in Belcom, in the gold mining era. Nobody ever outgrows scripture. The book widens and deepens with the years, and that's what the Prince of Preachers, Charles Spurgeon, said. By the way, Charles Spurgeon is also the greatest author in Christian history. Nobody has written more books, more text than Charles Spurgeon published. And if you put all of Charles Spurgeon's books together, they outnumber even Encyclopedia Britannica, which modern generations don't know what that is, but that's just a lot of books on the shelf. Be diligent to present yourself as a proof to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. It is our task to be able to study the word of God effectively. That's what 2 Timothy 2.15 commands us. 1 Peter 3.15, we are commanded always be ready to give a defense to anyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is within you. So we should always be ready to defend the faith, always be ready to present the faith, always be ready to be able to articulate what we believe, why we believe it, and to defend it in argument, which is part of what we're trying to do at a biblical worldview summit. Climbing mountains gives you a different perspective. You see things from a different perspective when you get to the top of Tate Mountain. And yet, you know, most people in Cape Town have never climbed the top of Lion's Head or Tabor Mountain and have never gotten that perspective. Isn't that amazing? Like most people in London haven't been to the Tower of London and things like that. It's, it's, there's some weird things uh, that you can find out. But Tabor Mountain gives you perspectives. You will see things from a perspective you cannot get if you're just on the ground. And so sometimes we've got to go up. We've got to go above the mob and the crowds and above the clouds sometimes to get a view, and that's the high point of the Great Commission course. Literally the high point. <coughs> we aim to go to the very top. <coughs> and it's great when God sets your feet on high places. And our Great Commission course <coughs> normally involves about seven hikes. Sometimes we've done more. But on the last night, we climb up to Tabe Mountain, we get to the top and have a service there, and then we hike down. Normally, we hike up in the day and we hike down during the night, ideally. It's a magnificent thing to get to, and it's always different. The view's always different. There's so many varieties that can happen uh, with the clouds and the mist and the winds and the waves, and 
you know, we've got desert to the north of us, we've got Antarctica to the south of us, and depending which way the wind blows, temperatures in Cape Town can change dramatically. We have felt freezingly cold on the top of Tate Mountain in the middle of summer. We've been hot on the top of Tate Mountain in the middle of winter. We've been drenched, we've been dehydrated, anything can happen, you can't tell, because we're at the junction between the warm Atlantic Ocean, the cold Indian Ocean, and at the uttermost parts of the earth, at the tip of Africa, all sorts of things happen on our mountains. And so it's always changing, but it's great. But this should also give us an idea when it comes to the mountains. Looking at the mountains in scripture, getting an idea of great points in redemptive history, being like a mountain goat, getting up there, or sometimes an eagle's eye view. Eagles fly the highest, they can see the furthest, they can zoom down the fastest, and eagles see things that you and I would miss. But they are an example in scripture, and we need to also tread on snakes and scorpions, spiritually speaking, in spiritual warfare. This is a composite picture taken from satellites of the earth at night. It's an actual photograph, it's not drawing. And giving a perspective of what the world on a cloudless night looks like. And you can see where the electricity is and where it is not. And uh, that gives you an idea that God could have a spiritual view. It wouldn't be the same because where there's a lot of light doesn't necessarily mean a spiritual light. It could be, in fact, the opposite. But if the Lord looks down on us, he can see where each of us stands spiritually as well. And that gives us a different perspective. Now, the Bible is a solid rock foundation, and it's a sword of the Spirit. It's a light to our feet and a lamp to our path. On the 31st of October, 1517, Professor Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses to the church door of the Schlosskirche, the castle church in Wittenberg, Germany. On the 1st of January, 1519, reformer Ulrich Zwingli dispensed with the Latin Mass and began expository preaching in the local language, Schweizerdeutsch starting with the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1, verse 1, and he worked verse by verse through the New Testament, the birth of expository preaching. The Reformers called believers to return to the Bible as the sole standard of faith and practice, to recognize the Lord Jesus Christ as the only true head of the church. Now, in 2012, in anticipation of upcoming 2017 and 2019 uh, Reformation 500 events, I embarked on a pretty bold and ambitious Back to the Bible Reformation Project, little did I know how much work it would involve, to read, study, and preach every book of the Bible, all 66, with the goal of producing books surveying Old Testament and the New Testament. And this involved quite a lot of background reading, understanding where this happened, when this happened, who wrote it, and all that, and, uh, and seeing Christ in every book of the Bible, which, of course, is what Jesus said when he rose from dead on the road to Emmaus. He explained that all these things had to take place. All the scriptures that speak of me, and he spoke about the law of Moses and the writings of the prophets and of the Psalms, they all spoke of Christ. So Jesus tells us he's in all the Old Testament scriptures. Do we recognize Christ in all Old Testament? So there's been a tremendous challenge, and it's been an adventure exploring and seeking to explain the central message of each book of the Bible and where it fits in the broad sweep of redemptive history. And I preached to every book of the Bible, trying to summarize that book in one sermon. Some cases, um, I needed two. Uh, some books are just too big, and, and so on. Uh, but when it came to Psalms, I needed four sermons to preach the Psalms, which after all was five books in the Bible anyway. And some books I was able to combine into one sermon, one and two chronicles, I summarized in one sermon, and so on. But basically speaking, we ended up with 
and Old Testament survey, audio sermons, which is all on sermon audio, and New Testament survey, and the books. Now there is something to be said for the preaching through the verses, verse by verse, uh, as was done by Martin Lloyd-Jones, who took years to preach through Romans. Apparently the people who traveled overseas came back and he's still preaching to Romans, or maybe even still the same chapter. And Martin Lloyd-Jones took years to preach to Romans because you can do that. I mean, there's just so much in every uh, verse in the Bible. And not trying to in any way denigrate that because that is important. But I saw the need for a bird's eye view, an eagle's eye view, a sort of cheetah racing through the scriptures, uh, touching the high points because most people have not read the whole Bible and haven't been exposed to every part of the Bible. And so to, to try and summarize one book of the Bible in one sermon is pretty hard. Um, but I'm known to be fast and impatient anyway. So uh, Cheats is one of my favorite animals out there. I mean, look at that acceleration. This is intelligent design in action, engineered for speed. So with that introduction, this morning, let's summarize Genesis. Generation, degeneration, regeneration. That sums up the book of Genesis. Creation, fall, judgment, new beginnings. Restoration. And so we can see these themes throughout all of Scripture, but this is now Genesis, the book of beginnings. It starts with generation, creation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He creates all the wildlife and all mankind. God created man. Male and female, he created them. And then there was degeneration. Mankind fell into sin. They listened to the temptations of Satan. Has God really said? They doubted God's word. And the result was, cursed is the ground for your sake. Degeneration. Satan, taking the form of a serpent, beguiled, deceived Eve, who convinced Adam to follow her, and they were cursed, they were judged, they were cast out of the garden of Eden, out of paradise. Cain killed Abel. Cain was jealous because his brother Abel presented a more acceptable sacrifice to God. He murdered his own brother. All mankind fell into sin and rebellion against God. Degeneration. But this was followed by regeneration, new beginnings, restoration, God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And this is the theme throughout scripture. Degeneration is followed by God's acts of mercy and regeneration. Creation, fall, judgment, new beginnings. Generation, degeneration, regeneration or restoration. To the question of why is there suffering and evil in the world, the book of Genesis lets us know that God created a good and a perfect world. Mankind's rebellion against the Creator introduced decay and disease and suffering and death into the world. Why is there evil world? Sin. Mankind chooses to disobey God. Who wrote the book of Genesis? Genesis was written by Moses. It's one of the five books of Moses. Moses wrote Genesis after Exodus from Egypt about 1445 BC. Doubtless there were already oral traditions, there might have even been some written traditions. Uh, that were already in existence beforehand, but most of the one who brought it all together and covered the whole book of Genesis. When did these things happen? Well, Genesis covers over 2,000 years of history. Genesis covers more time than all other books of the Bible combined. So in one sense, it's like one of the biggest books of the Bible in terms of the scope of what it covers. 
It's super important. Where are the main places in Genesis? Well, short order, Middle East. Eden, roughly somewhere around where Iraq is today. Arat, that's up uh, between the Black Sea and the Caspian Sea, the mountains of Arat. Ur and Babel, that's way down here in what today would be Iraq or Babylon. Canaan, that's what today many people are calling the state of Israel. That was the land of Canaan. And of course, Egypt, the superpower of the ancient world. So present day Iraq, Syria, Jordan, Turkey, Lebanon, Israel, Egypt, those are the biblical lands covered in the book of Genesis. What does Genesis cover? The theological foundations laid in Genesis concerning every major Christian doctrine, including the doctrines of God and man and sin and judgment, redemption and covenant. Genesis is super important foundation. Ultimately, all biblical doctrines find their roots in Genesis. God is eternal. God is holy. God is righteous. God is the creator, the eternal judge. God sets laws for us to obey. Sin separates us from God. Death comes from sin. God punishes sin. Genesis is a book of firsts. That's what it means, a book of beginnings. The first man, Adam. The first woman, Eve. The first marriage. Notice, God made Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve. Not even Genevieve. Adam and Eve. And notice he didn't make Adam and Eve and Genevieve. And, no, there's one man, one woman. So the foundation of marriage is one man, one woman for life. That's, that's the biblical pattern. The first sin, which started with doubting God's word and listening to Satan. The first promise of redemption. The first family. The first murder. In fact, many people like to look into genealogies, and it's an intriguing thing when you look into genealogies. There's always some people in your family that you're kind of embarrassed that they're there and you wish that they were not in your family lineage. You know, in most people's lineage, there's some real charlatans or even criminals or pirates or something. You know, there's, but, well, we can say this for sure. All of us have a murderer in our family genealogy, as in Cain, uh, because we all date from Adam and Eve. So one of our relatives, <coughs> distant relatives, is a murderer. And um, the first worldwide judgment is recorded in Genesis, the flood. The wickedness of man was great in the earth. Every thought of his heart was only evil continually. Idolatry, human sacrifice, blood sports, cruelty, savagery, slavery. The most debased practices were pre prevalent before the flood. And so the flood was a judgment on a wicked, evil, debauched world which was in rebellion to God. God was sorry that he made any of them. And he determined to make an end of it and he made a new beginning. And then after the flood, when Noah and his family came out, God gave the first laws by which to govern society, which included that if someone commits murder, he must be executed. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God has God made man. You have the origin of nations. You also have the rebellion of man at Babel, where man decided to build a name for himself to centralize to consolidate, to create a totalitarian centralized state 
which God was not pleased with. His command was to be fruitful, multiply, and to fill the earth, to disperse. God wanted decentralization. Man wanted centralization. A common theme throughout all world history. This should remind you of what they're trying to do in Europe right now. The EU self-consciously is building itself on Babel. And they even built their parliament looking like uh, the old painting by this uh, Belgian artist of the Tower of Babel. And they built their EU parliament in Strasbourg looking like an incomplete Tower of Babel, even with the scaffolding still in the design. And so you have God's judgment on Babel. And you have God's judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. And the angels come to rescue Lot and his family. Although Lot's family was not particularly a good family, but for the sake of Abraham's intercession, God sent angels to rescue him. Now Lot showed himself to be pretty bad in quite a few ways, and but compared to the people of, of Sodom and Gomorrah, he is a righteous man. His wife keeps looking back. She wants the life in Sodom. And she's turned to pillar of salt, judgment. In Genesis, you have the first messianic prophecy. Genesis 3, verse 15. The proto-evangelium, the gospel in seed form. Salvation is initiated by God. Salvation will be achieved by God. I will. Salvation has come through a mediator who is related to mankind. The seed, the seed of the woman, will crush the serpent's head. Salvation will involve the suffering of the Redeemer because the enemy will bruise his heel. If you've ever stepped on glass or nail or injured your heel, you know a heel injury can be super painful. But it's not necessarily fatal. Unless you're Achilles. But the enemy will bruise his heel, so the Messiah will suffer. But salvation will destroy Satan. Because the Messiah, the seed of the woman, will crush the serpent's head. He will crush Satan's head. And that's the theme you see throughout the Bible. Of, like in the book of Judges, Millstone being cast down to crush an antichrist type figure, a serpent type e evil figure. Uh, and used, even in Mel Gibson's film, The Passion of the Christ, he brings in this imagery in the garden where after wrestling in prayer with sweat becoming like blood, the Lord stands up and he crushes the serpent's head. I mean, the symbolism is there. This is exactly what the Lord is doing. And it's a theme throughout scripture. Now, how do we see all nations in God's purpose? Can you preach missions from the book of Genesis? Yes, you can. Missions is definitely in Genesis. God's purpose for all nations already is seen there. Genesis 12, verse 1 to 3. After the creation and the corruption and the condemnation and the confusion, Babel, the call of God comes to Abraham. Leave his home country. Leave his country. Leave his family. Go to the land that God will show you, and you shall be a blessing. And in you all the families, the nations there shall be blessed. This is the first missionary call. He must leave his family, leave his home country, leave his comfort zone, leave what he knows, go to a faraway place where God will guide him, and there be a blessing. For the goal of all the families, the nations that have been blessed. This is the missionary call of Abram. Throughout Genesis, you see relationship. God communicates with his creation. He calls us to fellowship. He calls us to walk with him. Adam walked with the Lord in the garden. Enoch walked with God. Enoch pleased God. Enoch was taken up to be with God. Noah communicated with God directly. Abraham was God's friend. He had a relationship with him. Joseph had an extraordinary relationship with the Lord. Who even revealed 
secrets in the future to. There are five patriarchs, fathers, in Genesis. Noah who built the ark. The ark was a floating church on a sea of God's wrath. Abraham, the father of the faithful, who will be a blessing to all the families of the nations. Now this is not saying that these people are perfect people. All had their weaknesses, all had their failings. But remember the theme of the Bible continually is about redemption and restoration, regeneration. It's not just about corruption and fall and judgment. It's also about regeneration, restoration, redemption. The Lord said to Abraham, leave your country, your people, your father's household. Go to land I will show you. I'll make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I'll make your name great. You will be a blessing. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And so Abraham went. And Abraham became the father of the faithful. Abraham went all the way from Ur in what is present day Babylon. Up to Haram. And to Aleppo, which is today in Syria. You get Aleppo in the news sometimes. Down to Damascus, that's often the news. Uh, and, and then past Lebanon uh, to what today is Israel and Palestine. Uh, Jerusalem, even met the Prince of Salem, Priest of Salem, uh, down to Beersheba, to Egypt, of course. So Abraham was involved in a great travel. Abraham's journey throughout the Middle East to go to the land bridge, the central point between Africa and Asia, and of course not far from the land bridge leading to Europe. So God plans his counterattack. After mankind's rebelled against him, Abraham's going to be the beginning of God's counterattack. Now this principle of divine election for universal service is stated again and again in Genesis. Genesis 18, 18. Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation and all nations on earth will be blessed through him. All nations. We read, and through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. Genesis 22, 18. Because Abraham was willing to even sacrifice his own son, his only son. His only legitimate son. Because Abraham was willing to sacrifice that which was most precious to him. Because he trusted God. Because he believed God. Because Hebrews 11 says he believed God would raise him from the dead. Because God had promised him that through his son, generations would be blessed. All families would be blessed. And so now he's being told to sacrifice that through which the promise is to be fulfilled. And Hebrews 11 tells us Abraham was convinced that God would raise him from the dead. Here you see the gospel in seed form. Abraham is a type of Christ. Isaac is a type of Christ's sacrifice, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Where's the Lamb? God himself will provide the Lamb. When Jesus arrived, John the Baptist pointed and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so you can share this with Muslims who believe they are children of Abraham, how Abraham actually was the father of the faithful. Through his faith, he was able to show a picture of Christ's redemption. How God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away his sins. Well, if the greatest way Abraham could show his love for God is to be willing to sacrifice his own son, what is the greatest way God could show his love for us? Abraham was told that his descendants would be as the stars of the seashore, as the stars of the sky and as the sand of the seashore. Now, how is that possible when he's old and childless and his wife is barren? How is this possible? Totally impossible. But Isaac, the son of the promise, was given by a miraculous birth, an object lesson of God's love and provision. Just as Christ was born, miraculously. 
virgin birth. God restated this divine call and commission to Abraham's son Isaac. Through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed. And so we see in Abraham and Isaac already a picture of divine election and redemption. You also see the, begin- the end of human sacrifices. Because when an angel ordered Abraham to put down a knife and to not kill his son, that was the first explicit command that stopped human sacrifice, which was normal to all the religions of the world. Everyone practiced human sacrifice. Even the Romans and the Greeks, even Caesar himself, practiced human sacrifices. They were, the Greeks and the Romans were not that advanced. I mean, they were doing human sacrifices until Christianity took over. But the biblical faith begins with do not sacrifice a human life. And so this is important in our culture, it's important in our heritage. And how Abraham commanded his servant to go and find a wife for his son from amongst his own people. And how the scripture observes how they were kind to animals, thoughtful, had a servant heart, and looking at the beauty of the characters and, and how they were uh, willing to, you know, when she came said, let me water your uh, your camels. Do you know how much water camels can take? Do you know how much hard work that is? Uh, how many times down the world you've got to go and how many liters these camels can drink? I mean, long journey and so on. This is a good test. See, this is the kind of person, someone who is kind to strangers, thoughtful to animals. God also reconfirmed this missionary call to Isaac's son Jacob. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. Genesis 28 verse 14. Now, there are people who say that the promises to Abraham are transferred onto a political state in the Middle East today. But what does the Bible say? We have to interpret Old Testament in light of New Testament. We have to interpret general scripture in light of specific scripture. Is there a scripture in New Testament that helps us to understand the blessings of Abraham? Yes, there is. Galatians 3 verse 16. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say into seeds as of many, but of one and to your seed who is Christ. Now, there are people who say today that you are blessed or cursed in relationship to what you do for a political state in the Middle East. But that's not biblical. That doesn't make sense. That doesn't fit with the Holy Scripture. And it's expressed. This promise was made to Abraham. Those who bless you will be blessed. Those who curse you will be cursed. And to your seed. One seed who is Christ. Not too many. And so, quite plainly, you are blessed in relationship to how you relate to Christ. If you're obedient to Christ, you'll be blessed. If you're disobedient to Christ and refuse to believe in him and faithfully follow him, you'll be cursed. It cannot be that, and I've had people come to me and say, that the reason why we have problems today is because our country, son voted against the State of Israel in a United Nations declaration. Oh, so we're getting storms and floods and famines and pestilences and problems. Not because we legalized abortion, kicked the Bible out of school, kicked Ten Commandments out of school, kicked prayer out of school, not because we're killing babies, not because we legalized blasphemy and Sabbath desecration and so on. No, oh, we've been cursed because some representative of the foreign affairs in a United Nations vote voted against a political state that rejects Christ and is atheistic and persecutes Christians in the Middle East. Does this make sense to anyone? But there are people who go that way. Those who curse Christ will be cursed. 
He is the only hope for mankind. He is the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father but by him. Now Jacob, whose 12 sons formed the 12 tribes of Israel, were a community of nations who would ultimately possess the gates of the enemies. Joseph, these are other patriarchs. Jacob, Joseph, Joseph, who is betrayed by his brothers into slavery. These are the five patriarchs. Joseph's integrity lifted him from prison to the palace. He was a dreamer, but he was also a doer. He was an imaginer, but he was also an engineer. He's quite an extraordinary person, Joseph. His brothers, who had betrayed him into slavery, came during the time of famine, needing food. He had a chance to get them back. He chose to embrace them, to welcome them, to forgive them. And when they pleaded with him, he said, what you meant for evil, God has used for good. Genesis 50, verse 20. And so, what a wonderful picture of forgiveness. In many ways, Joseph is a figure of Christ, too, in that way. Now, there are many genealogies in the scriptures. Many people skip the genealogies because why do we have these in the Bible? Well, it emphasizes the importance of your ancestors. Who we marry matters for all eternity. We are saved to serve. And so, genealogies are there for a reason, and many people skip them, but there's lessons to be learned in genealogies. Genesis also gives us an insight into the seeds of the Middle East conflict. The conflicts in the Middle East find their origins in the childless Sarah's foolish attempts to secure a descendant by having her husband Abram take the servant Hagar for a concubine. Ishmael, born to Hagar, was prophesied in Genesis 16 12. He shall be a wild man. His hand shall be against every man. Every man's hand shall be against him. That seems to fit, doesn't it? Much of what today is being presented as faith is actually condemned in Scripture as presumption. It was presumptuous for Sarah to give her maid Hagar to her husband Abraham to conceive a child that could fulfill God's promise of an heir. This set in train a series of disastrous events, which is still affecting us today. You see, as Proverbs 14:12 says, there is a way that seems right to man, but the end of is the way of death. Being sincere is no proof of being right. You can be sincerely wrong. We can all be sincerely wrong. So the presumption of Abraham and Sarah led to the birth of Israel, a wild man whose hand shall be against every man, every man's hand against him, and to a large extent the violence and the hostility of the Muslim Arab nations today is an ongoing legacy from that presumption 4,000 years ago. So when we say, it doesn't affect anyone else, what did business of them? Everything has a ripple effect. What we sow, we will reap. The Bible says God loved Jacob, but he hated Esau, his twin brother, Esau. Now, when people say God loves everyone, say, but the Bible says he hated Esau. Okay, God loves everyone except Esau. Uh, well, actually, there's other place in the Bible which says there's seven things that God hates. A proud look, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a man who stirs up trouble amongst his friends, and what are some of the others? Uh, he who sows discord amongst his brethren, whose feet rush off to evil. So basically, the proud, the lying, the seditious, the treasonous, the treacherous, the violent, the vile, God says he hates. It's, you know, first of all, it's a proud look. A lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood. 
feet that rush off to the evil. And it ends up with a heart that devises wicked plans and a person who brings discord amongst brethren. So Proverbs 6 says God hates those. So what are we doing saying God loves everyone? Um, <laughs> when I was asked to start a youth group downtown at a, uh, the oldest congregational church in town, it's in Clue Street, and uh, the first track we did to invite people to our coffee bar, youth group, outreach, Friday nights, was Does God Hate You? We had this very passage from Proverbs 6. I thought, you know, many people have heard God loves you and so on, so I thought, let's try a new evangelistic thing. In fact, we packed quite a lot of people in. People were quite astounded. You know, Does God hate you? And going through this saying, of course, it ended with redemption, but to get people's attention and to use the law of the Lord, which is perfect, to convert the soul, to use the law as a schoolmaster to lead people to Christ that they can know that they need to be justified by faith in Christ is important. Anyway, just an interesting point. Jacob ever loved, Esau ever ate it. Now Esau showed contempt for the covenant by marrying two Hittite women who were grief of mind to his parents, Isaac and Rebekah. Esau later married a daughter of Ishmael. And Esau despised his heritage. He sold his birthright for a mere plate of food. The descendants of Esau, Edom, became the intractable enemies of the people of God. To the extent that the Edomites intermarried with the Jews so much after the fall of Jerusalem in 586 BC that an Edomite king was running Israel when Jesus was born. King Herod the Great was the Edomian, Edomite. He, is, he was one of Esau's descendants. And so you can see the, the historic hatred of the Edomites for the true people of God and for the Messiah came out when massacring all the infants in Bethlehem to try and kill the Messiah. And in fact, the very people screaming, we have no king but Caesar. Release Barabbas, crucify Christ, his blood be upon us and our children. Many of them were Edomites, intermarried with the Jews at that time. Interesting thing, you can see this as you go through the minor prophets and work out what was going on there. And the fact that King Herod the Great was an Edomite. Now, most important, in Genesis there are six types of Christ in the book of Genesis. Christ is the seed of the woman who crushes Satan's head. Christ is the door to the ark. Notice there was only one door to the ark, only one way of salvation, the only way of salvation. Other than the cross in the New Testament, the ark in the Old Testament is the greatest reminder of the message of salvation. Noah had to place a door in the ark. Only those who went through that one door were saved from the watery judgment. God's son stepped into history to become Jesus Christ, the God-man. And just as Noah and his family had to go through the ark's only door to be saved, so we need to go through that one door. Jesus Christ declared, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and he will go in and go out and find pasture. Our Lord Jesus Christ said, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Notice, we're living in a time like the days of Noah. Genesis 6 verse 5 records, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. In some places it looks just like that today, does it not? God is a righteous God who judges wickedness. But just as God provided salvation to Noah and his family, God has provided an ark of salvation today through Christ's atoning death on the cross of Calvary. And this glorious resurrection, God has provided for our salvation today. Which the ark encounter in America is a good visual reminder and presentation of. 
Each one of us needs to go through the door of the Lord Jesus Christ in order to be in his ark of salvation. When our Lord was crucified, they took a large stone like a door rolled across his tomb. That door was opened when Christ rose from the dead. In the ark, there's numerous exhibits dealing with doors of Scripture. And when you talk about those doors, you challenge visitors as to where they stand concerning God's free gift of salvation through Christ. Like at the Passover, blood was put at the top of the door and on the sides of the door, so like the sign of the cross. Jesus is our Passover lamb, we read in the book of Corinthians. And so he is the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Christ is Isaac's sacrifice. God himself will provide the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The first time he came as a lamb, the next time he will not come as a lamb, he will come as the lion of the tribe of Judah. Jesus is also, in many ways, prefigured in Jacob's ladder. Jacob's ladder was symbolic of the way to heaven. He is the only way to heaven. The only way, the truth and life. No one can come to the Father except through Christ, who is like Jacob's ladder. And in a sense, Joseph is a Christ-like figure in the sense that he's betrayed by his brothers. He's cast into a pit, symbolizing that's where he's meant to die. But as Joseph came out of the pit, so Christ came out of the tomb. He rose from dead. And as Joseph was lifted up even to be governor of Egypt, so Christ has ascended in high over all powers and principalities, and he will come again to judge the living and the dead. Judah's scepter also is a type of Christ, because all kings will bow down to Christ. The scepter shall not pass from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. So Jesus is the scepter of Judah, which rules the nations. And then, of course, super important is the creation mandate. Genesis 1, verse 28. Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over every living thing that moves in earth. Caring for creation. Also called the dominion mandate. Improving the earth. Building on earth. God planted the garden. We must cultivate and develop it. And so the creation mandate is our concern and kindness and stewardship of all of nature and creation. God's first job he gave Adam and Eve was to care for the creatures he had made in the beautiful garden he had set up. So scripture alone is our ultimate authority. Yet many of the prevalent practices and prejudices of all too many Christians today are challenged and demolished by the matchless word of God. The more we study the Bible, the more clear it is that much of what has been done in the name of Christianity worldwide is far removed from biblical Christianity. My people perish from lack of knowledge. The Bible is progressive revelation. You can only understand the New Testament in the light of the events and the characters and the laws and the sacrificial system and the covenants and promises and prophecies of the Old Testament. I mean, if somebody says, Jesus, the Lamb of God, takes away sins of the world, it's like, what does that mean? Unless you understand the Old Testament practices, Old Testament sacrificial system, the Passover, how on earth can you understand what it means that he's the Lamb of God who takes away sins of the world unless you know Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22 and Genesis 22 and so on. A great building needs a deep and strong foundation. A tall tree needs an intricate root structure. Do you know, under a big tree, some of the large trees you might see in New England's forest, we are told that there can be a mile of roots underneath. But all the roots together, some of them are quite thick too. 
A tall tree needs a massive root structure. And God's word is the truth that transforms. Our Lord Jesus prayed, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. How are we purified? How are we sanctified? How are minds renewed? Through the word of God. Reading the word of God. Studying the word of God. Meditating the word of God. Understanding the word of God. Applying the word of God. And so the Old Testament survey was one of the books we produced for this. And we've just revamped, updated and reprinted Old Testament survey. It's been out of print for a very long time. And it's one of our most in-demand books. And so we just went in faith and printed 2,500 Old Testament surveys, most of which are still being bound and will be delivered to us in a year. But we've got the first 500 delivered. And we're wanting to supply these to pastors, teachers, lecturers, and Bible college students around Africa. And as more gets sponsored, more will be printed. In the meantime, anyone can access our sermon audio files on our web. The audio, or if you've got an MP3 player, we have them available as MP3 players too. This was followed by the New Testament survey as well. So now we've got handbooks that can help people in a very simple way, without having a library of books, amalgamating Matthew Henry's commentaries and Vine's New Testament words and all of that sort of thing. Uh, we are able to help people understand the Word of God better. So, questions, comments, complaints, criticism. Any other C's? Yes. Um, one, just, I guess, something that I've noticed and I've never really heard anybody talk about, really, um, but even one of the pictures kind of showed us a little bit, but, you know, Noah's building the ark, he's got all these guys helping him. Um, what are your thoughts on that? He could have easily employed people who didn't believe in what he was doing to do different aspects of it. It didn't have to be just his three sons and him doing all the building. They could have subcontracted out some aspects. Would you think, I guess I would think that if you were working with someone for 120 years, at least one of the guys would have come. <laughs> you know, I don't know. If you, you, you would hope. Yeah. yeah. I mean, maybe he didn't have any other help. Maybe he was getting help from some of the animals. Elephants yeah. might have been carrying logs of wood. I mean, I'm, I'm not sure. We've yeah. not given details. So, that's an artistic depiction from someone's imagination. Right. We don't know if he had contractors from the society. Yeah. If so, it would have been a lot of work. Yeah. I mean, it is a lot of work. Uh, just seeing the Ark encounter that they built there in Kentucky, it's mind-boggling, and it's a lot of wood in there. Um, but uh, an amount of people it took to build that. But of course, we had modern equipment for knowing the sons to have chopped down those logs planed them, transport them, nailed them in. Wow. A lot of work. But they could have done it all themselves, I guess. Yes. Just another comment on that. Uh, no, we didn't have much help from his son, but just to, uh, to uh, add up the dates, his son then got born around the time when he started living in So he would have had to wait a couple of years to get any help from any of them. Interesting observation. Thank you. Yes. Brian. What do, you, excuse me, what do you think of the idea that Moses got the uh, pre materials that he used to form the first chapters of Genesis from the tomb of Joseph when he was his bones? Do you think That's a strong possibility because Joseph had the position and the ability to collect a lot of the information and bring his bones back to the promised land obviously was very symbolic and important. 
But it's quite understandable that they would also have manuscripts and scrolls with them. It makes sense. There must have been things in writing. For example, the book of Job predates um, the book of Genesis. <coughs> Job is believed to be the oldest scripture book in existence. So there were books in existence, obviously. There was writing. There's no reason why um, they wouldn't have had some of those books available. Then most would have drawn from different sides and under divine inspiration of the Holy Spirit known what to select and put in. So Genesis must have been drawn from multiple sources. Any other comments, observations? What does the ark mean? The word the ark, what does it mean? Basically, a place, a sanctuary, I would, I would guess. Would you have a better description, understanding? Well, an ark is, uh, in the context of Noah, of course, it's a ship. In the context of the, uh, the stones upon the Ten Commandments were written, it was a box. Mm-hmm. As essence, an ark is something that carries something within it. So it's a, a box of some size. So when we talk about the Ark of Noah's Ark, in a way you can see that as a huge carrying device. Mm. And it's the same thing with the Ark of the Covenant. It was a carrying device. Out there. Yeah. yeah, it protects and carries and conveys. Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of Noah, those are two pictures. Mm. And they're both rectangular, generally speaking. Any other comments, questions? Yes. Is the Ark Encounter a great resemblance of what the Ark really looked like? I really believe a lot of thought and research has gone into it. It's brilliant. They've had some of the finest scientists in the world working on this for years before they uh, started to build the first um, structure on that land. And they've looked at so many things, including ancient shipbuilding. Amongst the things they've come to the conclusion of is that Noah must have been a shipbuilder. Now, why we think oh, he would have been some farmer and God would have called him to build this ark. It's more likely he would have been a shipbuilder that God called to build the ship. Because there were ships. And there were all kinds of evidence of different types of ships. And the way how they would have worked and how they would have used wooden plugs um, and nails instead of metal nails, because metal can rust. But the wood will swell with water. Much less likely to have leaks if you've got the wooden plugs. And then you have multiple layers. And so that when you look at how... And then, how do you keep the ship? If it was just a rectangular device, it, would, it could be tossed around a lot. But by having those sleek those, um, lines and having a, a bit of a sail at the back to swing it around so it's always facing into the wind and not being tossed and turned heavily, would have been a lot less traumatic for the inhabitants. But there's a lot of devices that, if you know shipbuilding, that would make sense. The fact that the ark survived, which it obviously had to, or there wouldn't be any human life around, uh, or animal life for that matter, aside from marine life. So the fact that it survived meant it had to be built to survive the 40 days of heavy storm. And uh, so doing all investigation, I'm convinced that this is the most likely design that would have survived the, uh, the flood. And also, you know, every culture in the world has got a tradition of the flood and some kind of art. But the only one whose dimensions work um, is the biblical one. Because the others have a great raft and a, you know, a circular thing and a, a box, uh, none of which could actually survive a real flood and things like that. So obviously the, the biblical one matches and what's absolutely convinced atheists to be converted. 
is the dimensions for the ark given in Genesis is exactly the dimensions for ideal shipbuilding today, which has taken millenniums to come to the conclusion of that's the correct size. Because you would notice the ancient ships were a lot squatter, a lot shorter. But the, the dimensions given the ark is just perfect for shipbuilding. And to think that was thousands of years ago, something like 4,000 years ago, those dimensions were given. It took us a long time to work out the best dimensions. And the dimension of the ark is the dimension of modern ships. Question But that's an assumption. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible doesn't say it was rectangular with square, uh, um, rectangular corners. So knowing the fact that a box-like structure would really be tossed around on the waves a lot. Could cause a lot of injuries too. The the more streamlined is the way that it would survive, and you 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 could be tossed upside down in some of these waves if you're not careful. There's also the serious concern that some meteorites hit the earth at the same time of the uh, of the flood, because it speaks about the fountains of the deep being opened up and the uh, canopy of the waters above coming down and and just turbulent. And if you look at the Pacific Ocean. One big Pacific Rim, it's, and it's so deep, you could drop Mount Everest and the whole Himalayas in the middle of, of uh, um, the Pacific Ocean, and it would be underwater, nothing showing. And that's how deep it is. That's how big it is. It's so big. It's so huge, the Pacific Rim. Now, they worked out that even if a five-kilometer-wide meteorite hit the Earth roughly where the mid, where the, mid, uh, the Pacific Ocean is, it would have created a tsunami wall of water about 10 kilometers high, sweeping around the world. It would have, and by the time both would have met, it would have been roughly around where Ararat and Middle East is, exactly the opposite end of the world from where evidence is that a meteorite hit, causing catastrophic tsunami that swept the whole world, covering everything. Uh, I mean, these are just some of the theories put out by scientists that the Ark encounter. But um, not only would the Ark have to be strong to survive that, but it would have been the best place possible to survive. Because by the, that time, the tsunami would have slowed down, the waves of waters would have got a lot less, and it would be at its least destructive by the time it would reach roughly where the Middle East is today. Um, I mean, these are just some of the funny things that you can look at. And you look at the ripples in the, in the Pacific. Something amazing happened to create that particular, and it's, it's almost a perfect circle. Um, anyway, when you're looking at the possibilities, not just continental drift, but a meteorite hitting at that time, it should explain how the water could have covered everything and you know, cause such devastation. Yeah, yes, Ken? The other thing is the ark was built to survive in rough conditions. That's correct. It just had to survive. But that's why these curves at the end were designed that when the water or the wind is coming this way, it'll move in, so it takes it head on, which keeps the boat more stable. Because if you hit by heavy tsunami or wave on, on the side, I mean, the whole thing can flip and break up and so on. So this is the right way to keep it in the right direction. It's, there's a lot of technology and thoughts that's gone to it. And what they also discovered is, you know, don't think that newer is always better. We cannot make silk 
as fine as what silk was made back in the past. We can't make uh, steel swords as well as the Toledo steel swords were being made back in uh, Spain in several hundred years ago. We have not been able to produce samurai swords recently as good as the samurai swords that were made hundreds of years ago. Some technology has been lost. Uh, and also, some people are saying, well, no vessel of the 19th century would have been able to survive the flood. That's true. But there were vessels made longer ago, like by the Phoenicians, that were better built than the ships we make in uh, the 1800s, uh, 19th century. Um, not only that, but we've discovered that there were ways of making wooden longships much stronger than what we got to in the Middle Ages. And so there's cases where you can look at some old technology and say, you know, they did that better. Like we today don't know how on earth they got those massive multi-ton stones uh, within less than an inch uh, of flat walls at the Great Pyramids. You look at the Great Pyramids, it's an engineering marvel, the, the precision within an inch of exactness within uh, the four sides and the dimensions. How do they do that? We don't even know how they did it. So just because we don't know, it doesn't mean that they didn't know back then.